All right, and we're live. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode nine of the Redesign Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Ritwich Gautam, and I'm joined by my co-host and uh, one of my best friends, Tim Rodolo. And today's an episode I'm really excited about because uh, we're joined by my first and foremost, most importantly, my ex-landlord, uh, but also uh, the, uh, the group product manager at ServiceNow, a really, really dear friend of mine, uh, Rahul Srinivasan. Uh, Rahul, you've worked at product in multiple different companies, and uh, instead of instead of kind of stealing your thunder or trying to do an intro that is underwhelming, I'm gonna teed up to you. Could you tell me just a little bit about uh, and tell everyone a little bit about your journey? Uh, How do you end up being the group PM for ServiceNow's platform AI division? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess I'll start from. Uh, I graduated college right around the bottom of the recession in 2008, 2009. So finding jobs was hard. I found a startup and got my feet wet actually into full stack development, which was not what I was went to school for. So oh. I learned a lot on the job. Uh, and that role transitioned into a product analyst role at a different company. Eventually, I moved my way over to Facebook and did some data science uh, work there. From there, I went and did B-School while I was working full-time, decided that I wanted to go to B-School primarily because I found that product management was my sort of calling, and then um, wanted to get into product management as quickly as possible, and that was my path there. When I finished B-School, I moved to a couple of different companies. I tried some ad tech companies, health tech, ended up sticking in health tech for a couple of years, and then from health tech, moved over to sort of uh, the HR world and worked in an HR AI chatbot company for a little bit. And uh, we were helping hire uh, candidates for, you know, high volume uh, restaurant type jobs as well as technical jobs. And um, right around the beginning of COVID, there weren't a whole lot of restaurant workers being hired. So that company was uh, sort of uh, closing down its doors or, and uh, that, transitioned me into a job at ServiceNow where I had had some contacts and they were looking for someone with my skill set and I landed there and I've been there for three years now. So that's, that's how I got here. That's excellent. And uh, I think, I think this is exciting uh, as an opportunity for me, especially uh, in this episode, because we get to talk to you about, about AI and like, you know, you, you've been in the AI space before everybody was about it. You were doing it before it was cool. You're like an AI hipster. Right. Um, and uh, and so I would love to learn a little bit about sort of your trust with AI and AI product. And then we can we can go and talk about some of your past experiences. So I think what might be helpful to context set is if you tell us just a little bit more about your role at ServiceNow is like the group PM and what what is the platform AI division and like, well, what, what do you do? Yeah, sure. So um, for anybody who maybe saw. Uh, the earnings call that ServiceNow had or any of the more recent news that has happened. Some of the things that ServiceNow is doing is figuring out how to take generative AI and really apply it to an enterprise context. I think when most people hear about or talk about AI, they think about Tesla and self-driving cars. They think about, you know, chat GPT, obviously, mm -hmm. and they think about Dali. And a lot of these are very consumer facing applications which have a whole set of uh, different challenges and problems and benefits. 
But in an enterprise context, when you're trying to build something or help people search across a database of information, you don't necessarily want to contribute. I'll give you like a totally hypothetical example. If I'm Verizon, I don't necessarily want to contribute to a model that's going to help AT&T, which is a very right. different perspective. In the consumer world, you maybe more have individual artists who don't want to contribute that their work might get ripped off. Uh -huh. So it's a very fundamentally different problem statement and use case. Interesting. So, um, no, so I was going to say there's one more thing that I would suggest yeah. was, yes. Yeah, so like that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is like the research partnerships. Mm -hmm. So I think yesterday the news was announced that ServiceNow has a partnership with Hugging Face, where we published a, a large a 15 billion parameter large language model called Star Coder. And that is the ability to sort of generate code from prompts. And so it's done in a very open source ethical way with extendability in the contract licensing. But if you think about doing that partnership and then figuring out how to put that into our platform, uh, that's a really interesting piece that I'm working on. That's, that's really interesting. So I, I think something that uh, about the enterprise use case that, I, that I'd love to like dig a little deeper into, right? Uh, and and this this perhaps speaks to like what kind like what is an AI product based on like who who you're who you're giving to so I think like you know a generative AI product like a Chat GPT use case uh, for for like a consumer use case is like hey I I get to put in prompts and and it and it develops and I as a consumer don't care if my prompts are helping refine the overall model that other consumers might benefit from right um, right but but in this case you're saying that hey like people want to use like in an enterprise context, there would be, there would be interactions with the AI, but they want that to just refine the model as it applies to themselves, but not, not if that same model or like is applying el elsewhere. Uh, am I, am I understanding Yeah, that's that one aspect. That's no. one aspect. I think really what it boils down to and what, what I've spent the last three years at ServiceNow really working on is around AI governance. How do we make Got sure it. that we're building AI in a responsible way while mitigating risks for our customers so like chat gpt nobody's stopping you today from entering your phone number or your social security into a chat gpt prompt right and hypothetically if you do that in the next model iteration and if it uses that data to train it could spit that data out which if you're thinking about legal ramifications with gdpr or ccpa that does have significant ramifications so for an enterprise that wants to use a model and wants to help contribute to a model, what does that mean for them? So that's one aspect of things. There's another one around security. A lot of stuff out there that is help, helping uh, or being used to help build large language models today is open source software. Mm -hmm. So who's doing the security vetting of those softwares and making sure that they're not generated by some, I don't know, Eastern European contracting company which might be in a war zone. So like there's right. at the enterprise scale, you start thinking about some of those problems to make sure that you're building something that's robust for your customer base. And so for us, my tool team internally is building a lot of those tools and environments and frameworks so that AI practitioners within the company can leverage them to build large language models or AI functionalities for our enterprise customers. That's really, really interesting. Um, so <clears throat> now, uh, I mean, the podcast is called Redesign Growth, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and I think when, when we look at a company like the size of ServiceNow 
and and like you know with the product depth of service now you have pms like servicing various aspects of the product various levels of the product um and and i, I what i want to know is like at a, at a company that size like are you are you really thinking about like product design uh or product even like just product strategy um in terms of like revenue growth or is that is it just so far removed that that's like that's not even a thought like or or is the is the north star something else it's it's not revenue but it might be like risk mitigation or like you know what 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 how does that how does that change when it's you get a, to a company that size it's a totally good question i think the answer is the so the short answer is yes of course revenue is still forefront of your mind i think mm-hmm. the difference is at a scaled company and like i don't know if we've ever talked about this uh, but there's this idea when you're in a startup right my entire career primarily startups i think minus 3 4 years of my career i've never been at a company larger than 20 when i started wow so when I, when i was thinking about that you're a product manager you own from like user research preliminary designs all the way through execution implementation and you're the sales support as well mm-hmm. at a company like ServiceNow it's a very common thing to split that role so now you're inbound product manager is a more technical person talking to the engineering team to execute your outbound product manager is more of your sales support how do you do your go to market strategy etc mm-hmm. and then you can even go and support split that to another level here are customer facing features. Here's internal product tools that are going to help support those teams to build what they need. So that's right. where it changes, right? If you're building internal tools, your ACV met, uh, priority is probably less, mm-hmm. but you are thinking about, okay, how do I scale this? So I am impact the most number of teams that are going to drive ACV. Right. So it's, a, it's more indirect than direct. Right. At that point, like your target, like your target user is not like the ServiceNow customer. It's like other teams in ServiceNow. And, exactly. and as a result, the North Star kind of changes. Uh, right. That, but you do think about your customer and maximizing their ability to generate ECD. Kind enough. of a um, degrees of separation thing. Like if I support this yes. team, supporting those groups, they're supporting those customers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and so I think, I think, and now we can end our like this, this moment of like just juxtaposing this right like where you have this immense stratification of of like you know mandates and like what what is required of you as a pm uh when when this company's at that scale and then what happens when you pare down to a company like evidation health or or like a smaller company that you've worked at in the past might be leads rx right uh, uh yeah. i'm assuming a lot of these roles get kind of uh merged together but yeah, uh, there's also operationally, I'm sure, some fundamental differences in terms of like how how work got done then, and then how work gets done at ServiceNow now. Uh, it's a weird yeah. sentence. Um, and uh, and then also like, are are there any similarities? It's a great question. Yes, there's tons of differences. I think those are the ones that come to mind most easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sh- I'm sure you're uh, you've lived this and breathed this, and we've talked about it before, but like. Hey, I have a customer who needs this thing. I'm going to build it. I'm going to ship it within the next two weeks. Yeah. Right. Sprint wise planning. That's, uh, that's a thing that can happen at a startup at a service. Now our release cadence is significantly longer. Our family releases happen every six months. Mm-hmm. Customers take anywhere between six months and a year and a half to adopt. 
because they have entire teams working on adoption and all the customizations they have, which is the power of the platform. You have such flexibility, but it means when you transition, you have to be very careful and make sure that all the pieces go. Am I really getting value out of this upgrade or when do I want to do it? I have to sync it with my own internal timelines because ServiceNow is a piece of my company, not my company. Right. Right. So it's, it's those pieces. That's one, one aspect. Uh, Another aspect is, I think um, when you have two people, you have one lane of communication that goes two ways. It's pretty straightforward. When you mm-hmm. add three, you don't have three, right? You right. Have, and when you add four, it's not four. It's, it's a nonlinear scaling. So the yeah. larger your company goes, your job shifts uh, significantly. Your job shifts from uh, communicating what we should do and getting it done to making mm-hmm. sure that there's alignment strategically on the thing that needs to be done. Because when there's alignment, you're able to move a lot faster. You have a lot more resources. You can just go execute. But what you execute on has to be more thought through and more structured and more rigorous. So those are some of the changes. Um, there's a lot, you have product market fit, you're a multi-billion dollar company. You're not really trying to go put out 10 features and see which one sticks. So I think there's right. some differences, you know, some fundamental differences in that. Right. You're not in the experimentation phase anymore. You're just Absolutely. Uh, like, you know, you, you've got, you found the niche and you're maybe trying to find like incremental value or, uh, or like how, and so actually, you know what, this this actually uh, ties into another question. Do you do you feel like do you feel like, you know, in the enterprise use case or or the startup use case? I think Tim and I are very familiar with the startup use case and the pitfalls of like product, like, you know, the fast moving product environment has some pros, like in the sense I could just get up and be like, all right, guys, let's let's do this. And like like you said, you know, build and ship something in two weeks. But it's got some cons in terms of like, hey, how how successful is that thing going to be? Like you're uh, a lot of the stuff like you're trying to operate on research and stuff, but a lot of it is like uh, an intuition and experimental and 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 things like that. Right. Uh, what What would you say are some of the pitfalls of like enterprise product management? Like, where do you where do you find that? Like, do you miss something where you're like, man, I used to be able to work in the, in these ways, or I used to be able to do this stuff like earlier. And now I, I wish I could, but I can't because of, because of like the strictures of like the enterprise, um, enterprise environment. Yeah. I mean, personally, right. I definitely Mm -hmm. feel sometimes the itch, the like, oh man, we've got to go through six reviews to do this thing that if I really wanted to go do it, I could do it tomorrow. Um, I definitely feel that, but it's a trade-off, right? Like, um, I can do it tomorrow and have zero customers or I can do it in six months and have a thousand or 10,000 customers already there who are adopting it and being impacted. I think that's a huge, huge, um, trade-off and you, it's just a matter of comfort with that space. Mm -hmm. Um, and knowing that, that you got to be a little bit more patient. And bureaucracy is the wrong word. It's you have checks and balances for a reason, right? I think about it like it's sort of the same thing as like if you've grown up and you have a sibling, you can like get into fights with your sibling, you punch them, like fine, that's great. You can do that and their repercussions are relatively small, but like you can do it without any thought. Mm-hmm. If the president could do the same with nuclear strikes because they got into a, you know, a fight, probably not great. <laughs> So there's right. a reason for, for the expansion of checks and balances and s- slowness. That's that that's a really good point. Analogy. 
Yeah. One, one avenue I want to uh, explore here that's kind of related is um, going back to you were talking about working as a product manager in a startup in a small organization and how that uh, role ties into every aspect for starting from user research all the way out through design launch uh, and then you know evaluation. And one thing I'm curious about, obviously, us being a user research company. Um, the way that user research fits into the picture at these different levels. So, uh, and there's kind of a, a conversation happening in the UX user research space right now about who does user research, who should do user research. Uh, you know, we have some customers of ours where it's the designers doing the research. We have some customers that that say, no, our designers can't touch research. It has to be a researcher doing it because the de uh, designers have bias or uh, you know, the product managers have bias. Um, so I'm curious your perspective on how user research fits into a product cycle in different kinds of organizations and, and um, how you've seen that play out. So I, I, it's a great question. I am a strong believer in user research. Um, but I think you're right. There's a, there's a large um, debate on approach, I think, is really what it boils down to. If you think about a startup world, I think it's really important that the product manager is heavily involved, specifically because of some of the things we've talked about. Sometimes you're making decisions that are intuition based. So if you're not part of that user research phase and like really integrally part of it, as much as you may be biased in asking your questions, you don't have enough knowledge to build your intuition. On the other hand, at an enterprise company, when you have the capacity and the scale and the time to go do proper research across 20 customers and pull back that data and synthesize it and get it, that's also super helpful and telling because your roadmap is not about trying to find product market fit. It's making sure that what you change impacts the most amount of customers as possible. So I think there's a balance to be struck. I think also there's like, yeah, you can talk about bias, but everyone's biased. So I actually think user researchers might go to, let's zoom out and go to step zero blue sky. And it's like, no, there are constraints in what we need to talk about based on what we know already today. So that that is also a, an aspect of the conversation that's, I think, important. So, I mean, I think it's hard to say what will always work. I think human touch, getting to know your user researcher and then being able to level set with them where we are, what kind of research are we trying to do and what outcomes are we trying to drive mm -hmm. should help. And then there's also like, you know what? I have this belief, but like, let's question it. That's okay too, but you maybe not want to go all the way back to step zero, maybe two steps back, one step back, whatever it is, depending right. on where you are and what your deadlines are and, and that sort of mm -hmm. dynamic. Yeah, yeah, love that answer. Another so, thing I'm curious about, oh, Rick, go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. Uh, I was just going to kind of tie the user research stuff back into the AI uh, products that you're working on now and what user research looks like when you're working on an AI product. And I you know I don't know that much about AI, but I imagine, you know, AI, you know, generating stuff on the fly, it, it might be a different experience every single time. It's not one experience that everyone's having. Is, is, does that affect the way that you are doing uh, user research, UX research? Is that a challenge? Yeah. What does that look like? I think it's a big challenge. I think there's a, I think AI development in general is still relatively new. But from my experience, the ways that people do AI development fundamentally is more iterative 
and building your product is almost part of the user research. You can't do user research first, determine what you're going to do, and then ship. Um, a really good analogy for this, uh, example for this is um, a lot of people historically have thought about code as I take input, I do my code, I get output. AI flips that paradigm. I take my input and my output and I get the code, mm. right? So then yeah. when I now take new input, I can get output using the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. But that means it's probabilistic and not deterministic. Got it. So I can put in, I mean, ChatGPT, you've experienced this. You put in the same prompt and you can get four different responses. Yeah. So how and do you do user would... research? Exactly. Right. I mean, I, I remember like once I like I, I typed in a chat GPT, like, you know, hey, like who, like the 10, you know, who are 10 women in UX? And the number one result was Don Norman, the like, you know, the guy. So, far. so there, there, there's like there's wild inaccuracies, et cetera, in output. And and that's fine. Right. And on, on like a consumer level, like it's funny. You know, it lets me tell the story. We all laugh and we move on. But when you're striving for some degree of like like if you're trying to have a generative use case but put guardrails on it where it has like objectivity and reliability in terms of its response right how do you, how do you contend as like a pm with with the concept of like a black box like uh, I, like how much how much of it is like hey man we really don't know what this thing is going to do we really don't know what this thing is going to say and like how much of it is it, i think we don't the unknown the field of the unknown is like Pared down to about this much versus like it being anything. I think that's right. I, I think like forgetting generative AI, which I think explodes mm -hmm. that question to a scale that I don't think I have a good answer for. Right. But even if you take predictive capabilities on a multiple regression, mm -hmm. I can tell you why I think this. I can tell you how confident I am about my prediction. Yeah. But it's still a prediction. When you submit right. a ticket and you say like, hey, I'm having problems with my Wi-Fi, I can tell you it's probably a software problem. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily have the context that you're working at Broadcom developing routers and you're actually, it's a hardware problem, right? It's like, these are really interesting problems because that changes the output. Mm -hmm. And the real question the user researcher has to answer, in my opinion, is how do you manage change management for the users who are seeing the outputs of the AI? Which is, hey, it's, right. it's not always right or wrong. It's a suggestion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, how would getting a suggestion in this step help you? Yes or no? Mm. So you're kind is of is it going to make you think differently? Yeah. You're kind of baking that uh, like warning language or instructional language or, or instructions on on how uh, a user should be thinking about what this product is and does. You're baking that into the UI where the AI. Is interacting with them yeah that's definitely one way to handle it right the other way to handle it is the sort of disclaimer hey may or may not be good and that's like the scale of the unknown that Ruth's talking about yeah and i think that's hard I, I don't think there's a good answer right i think this is where the research is today is like figuring it out i think explainability is a large part of it like how do you explain what these models are thinking mm -hmm. and um chain of uh chain of reasoning is one aspect and methodology that you know one yeah. gets better results, but also is like more clear for a user to follow. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very fascinating topic. I think that you can spend hours just on that particular piece. So uh, we actually had a, a LinkedIn user uh, put in a question. So uh, this is this happens rarely, but when it happens, it's fun. So 
we've as a team on this right like and and also in the ux world there's this cons there's this talk about democratizing ux right and it, or like democratizing ux research and like democratizing insights and it's this thing that harkens to like this flat organizational structure and and i think startups love it cuz like startups reckon with that thing but i think once you go into enterprise and you start getting to talk about stratifications like when someone says democratization of research activities right uh how does how like is that is that an idea where like that's actually shunned it's like dude no man like we can't we can't just have like any rando showing up and like contributing research wise or if we're aiming for democratization we need to do so in a systemic way as opposed to like everyone put your hands up kind of situation like or i mean can you speak to it i think in two, two ways right one how how have you seen that organizationally like is there been like a push for democratization at older organizations you've been at like so your your previous startup experiences and what does that look like at service now and then personally what's your opinion on this like do you feel like when i say like democratization of research or like you know democratization of U, like ux research uh that does that does that ring a bell and you're like yeah or does that make you cringe and you're like holy shit that's a shit show right like um i think so let me st- start with answering past experiences i think facebook does this particularly well on user research trips they take engineers who can watch the research being conducted they help work with the researcher to provide more questions I and mean, that's like a super good way of integrating teams to make sure that everybody feels like they're part of the research mm-hmm. at startups i think it's harder because everybody has a job to do and five deadlines they're behind on because everything needs to happen for the customer yesterday so it's a little bit hard to pause take time out of your schedule to go help someone with a different job function And I think you have a similar problem at a large scale enterprise where while Facebook does it really well operating on small teams that way I'm not sure how much democratization of the information happens across a company and I think that's a really hard problem to solve and it boils down to communication I think there's the other part my my personal opinion is democratization of information is sort of similar like democratization of role I think ChatGPT and all of these tools are actually helping doing that. Um because you could argue I have a good idea for product, why shouldn't I be a product manager and contribute in that same way? I have a great idea for code, why can't I just go code a prototype or a you know, proof of concept. Mm-hmm. And I think ChatGPT along with other large language models are enabling people to do that. Right? Right? Like I don't I've been way out of practice for coding for a long time. Two weekends ago I picked up ChatGPT and I said, "Okay, you know what? I'm going to go write an iPhone app." And I'm going to use ChatGPT. I'm not going to watch any instruction videos. I'm just going to go and say, "Here's what I want. Give it to me." And in like 4 hours I was able to put together a basic app. I had an idea. I went and go build right. a thing like it's not difficult. And so like you've re- you've removed that barrier to access mm-hmm. and it's a leveler in that way. So similarly like, "Hey, I want to go research this topic." how are ways for me to ask people these questions without biasing them to an answer i think it's one of these four options chatgpt can help right interesting so so i think i think like for me right like when when people talk about democratization of of ux research like a core to core to the idea of democracy is like everybody's voice uh it 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 weighs the same right and i feel like i feel like 
that that's that's true of like a democratic like voting process but i feel like that becomes dangerous when 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 you get into like my vote counts the same as like you know tim's vote and your vote and oh, oh wait i can't vote i'm not a citizen but uh, <laughs> but but you get my point right but but i feel like there there is this like weighting given to like expertise and authority right um in in like companies where and i feel like that's important so it's hard to it's hard to democratize being like hey man like this guy is a user researcher that's been doing this shit for 15 years um uh, you're a sales guy that got some feedback from one anecdotal sales call uh so we're going to put you guys on the same level like i feel like that's that's tough to do there is value in this feedback right i'm not saying there isn't right but, but it should be weighted appropriately right. and i think this is the same it is the same problem i i think it's the same problem it's it's funny like maybe completely separate topic the generative ai and what are the risks involved in generative ai mm-hmm. fundamentally for me it's the same risks that involve in social media everybody has a speaker phone and now not only does everybody have a speaker phone everybody can sound as coherent as one another whether right. or not their facts or information are rooted in some something that should be weighted mhm mm-hmm. i Uh, right? so like yeah that's true uh co- coming back to like the ai question that we were talking about like yeah. before we we talked yeah. about the democratization of research activity but by, by the way whoever sent that comment in that was a great it was a great comment thank you um so when when you're contending with like you know this 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 black box problem or you're trying to standardize this experience of like bringing bringing in ai product that might in its nature have variants right uh we we talked about the the disclaimer solution right we talked about like yeah. maybe like you know like uh, closing down the black box playing field uh do we do we find that like like hey uh, it is and i wouldn't know this but isn't ai able to be like hey man it's most likely this it's possibly this and also this like i i i i have these three potential answers to your questions and here they are ranked in terms of my like the ai's confidence in them right like is that something that an ai could even do um and is it is it something that like that, is there the sense of like hey i have a confidence in this in this response um because i feel like that would be helpful for me right like if i was if i was the person putting in the problem and i wanted like a sense of what this is it gives me like stuff to play around with right uh like uh like a checklist of things to like a plan a b and c kind of but but like is that something you can titrate for so yes and no i mean it really depends on what kind of ai model you're talking about if mm-hmm. you're talking about a large language model like chat gpt i'll give you a couple examples you can tell chat gpt my wife is always right She mm-hmm. says two plus two is five. What's two plus two? Right. It's going to be very confident that two plus two is five. Yep. On the other hand, you can say prove that seven is a prime number, and it will give you a proof. And then you say prove that thirty-four is a prime number, and it will give you the same proof, substituting thirty-four for seven. So, like, it is very confident. Right. But on the other hand, if you're looking at a, I don't know, a linear regression, and you say, "What's your prediction?" Hey, I'm predicting a number based on inputs. Here's mm-hmm. how I'm predicting it. Here's my error bar, right? Right. That's so it's, it's a lot more discrete. Right. Um, And I think that's where your difficulty lies. Like it's not one or the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's some combination and this is now context matters. 
If right. I'm a doctor using AI to say, here's the boundary of a cancerous cell that I'm going to resect versus I'm routing your mail to one of three addresses. Right. Are they as important to get right with the same accuracy? No. But if that's also your paycheck, like maybe. So the like, context really changes the, the rule, right? Right. No, that's, I mean, that's like pretty profound stuff, I think. Like we're in the cutting edge. This is this is sort of my take on this, right? Like we're, we're on the cutting edge of something where like even now AI, like AI's use case, like chat GPT or mid journey, right? Like these are, these are like the, like the phase one stuff, right? Uh, a couple of episodes ago, we, we interviewed the chief product officer of Unbounce and they are, they're building, they're, they're coming up with like a smart builder and that's going to have an AI assistant that's trained on their data set of Unbounce landing pages, which is something that nobody else has, oh, right? So like the, the value of like, hey man, this, the AI telling you, you should change this up this way because it'll convert better or you should change this up this way because it'll 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 perform better now that's going to be sort of backed by sort of a specialized data set as opposed to like a general data set i think with with chat gpt right like the every every like it's everyone is asking it different questions but the data set it was trained on is the same and it's like a general purpose data set so i think i think that yeah. definitely plays a role um so w- what's interesting to me is is the next like is the next thing like what, what a secret sauce is, hey man, I my model is trained on a data set where that all other models are not trained on, right? Does that become the, the cutting edge or the differentiator or the USP of one product versus the other? Because ultimately I feel like every product in the next 30 years, 40 years is gonna be like in some way, shape or form AI augmented, if not like the product itself is AI. So does that become the differentiator, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on. I think data is the differentiator. It's not just data, though. It's data, quality of the data, and how much I'm able to leverage that data. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's it's a combination of those three things. I'll give you an example. The IRS has every person's tax information. Could they generate an AI model that's going to identify where le- legislation could affect the com- country's debt more or less? Absolutely. Right. Are they allowed to use that data? No. Right. <laughs> so like now you run into problems and like, that's where like, there's a lot of open questions around how we're going to legislate or, or um, codify how data can be used. It's really going to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think, I think like guardrails or like the sort of regulatory environment that that you set up the regulatory sandbox you set up for products to flourish right like or for products to build are very important like uh, as it happens early stage so uh, one of our friends here uh was the former supreme court justice of utah um dino Jimones, and he and he he spearheaded uh building the regulatory legal sandbox because there was like a ton of regulations about like startups just getting to show up and build legal tech right like uh, because it's it's you know you're not allowed to give legal advice if you're not a lawyer like you know bar certified all of this stuff and and like he was like hey we're gonna build this regulatory sandbox that is sort of air gapped from like impacting actual legal decisions etc but here we can we can be experimental and I think so what well, happens when your generative AI can pass the bar right is like, it allowed think, to write legislation precisely right so I think I think this is so 
with with AI, right? I feel like first of all, it's going to upend like its its capacity is far outweighed by like it, it not not far outweighed. Its capacity far outweighs like what other kind of tools were earlier, right? Like some right. like you know it it can do if you let it, it will do it. Will it do it well? Will it do it properly? Will it do it right? We don't know, but it will do pretty much anything you put it to, right? Like, like absolutely. It, so, so I, I think, I think I would love to delve a little bit more into like, and this is perhaps some of the stuff you've been working on most recently. Is like, like what are what are some of like the chief regulatory concerns? So if I'm showing up tomorrow and I'm like, hey man, I want to make an AI that's that's like responsible, that's safe, that's accurate, and then also is its other north stars like adding value in whatever vector I'm applying it to, right? Uh, yeah. Like, what is what is what? How do I even go about building like a regulatory sandbox? Is it Asimov's law of robotics, or like what is the <laughs> what is the application? So I think I think that's the right question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Just from a what is the right approach to take? Across, I mean, like, I know what the right approach to take as an enterprise company is, but I've been thinking about it a lot from the perspective of what would a startup do? And I think there's a couple things. So one, I think you move at 85% of the speed that you want to move at. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is dedicating time, whether it's 15, 20% to say, I'm going to keep track of data lineage. I'm going to know what data I used for this. So if I need to change, I can go rerun it. I'm going to have to be mindful about my pipelines because some of these pipelines take weeks to go generate a model mm -hmm. and I'm going to fine tune it. I can't throw away that work. So before I do that, having a check and balance is saying, I am sure I can use all this data. I've documented it. I've logged it. I have a checkpoint. So that's one part. And I think there's a bunch of companies like weights and biases as a tool that are doing sort of model experimentation, checkpointing, and, and how do I know which one's good and bad? Then there's a piece around um, security and compliance. So making sure that you, as a startup, I'm sure you're, you have a legal team, but making sure there's legal guidelines you want to follow. And that might be as simple as saying, I'm not using any European customer's data. I'm not using anything that's in Europe because that touches GDPR. I don't want to try it. Mm -hmm. So finding the most permissive and maybe segmenting geolocation that you care about. Right. And then there's a... Third part, which is like setting up best practices around data governance. So having mm -hmm. one person in your company who's going to dictate policy, documenting it, and then like helping you move fast, but saying yes to this and no to that, having one person who's responsible for it is actually super helpful mm -hmm. until they start getting to be the bottleneck. But I think something along those lines seems like a reasonable balance of responsibilities. Right. Uh, I, I think, I think, you know, and this 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 perhaps dovetails into a, a larger question about like legislative, like legislative action. But like, if I am if I am this country's lawmakers, which for the most part are like old and like pretty out of touch with like new tech, like they're not tech experts. Like they can call upon a panel, but like the 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 extent to which their opinions are informed. Right, uh, is is outdated, right? Like, and and we've seen it. We've seen it, with, like with like past hearings of, you know, where, where tech CEOs have been called in and, you know, asked about products that are not theirs and and stuff like that. And and this this speaks to like a lack of knowledge. My question is like, do we, 
are are you afraid of this? this is kind of like a pandora's box situation where it's like hey we 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 took this thing we didn't like we didn't fully understand it like we were we were like building it and we were building it to scale and building it to grow we st- started taking advantage of the value like the immediate value it started providing us so its proliferation was extensive but without guardrails will you be able to put that genie back in the bottle right like or or like you can't right so how do you like what is legislative like how how do you go back and like back uh sort of backfill for like stuff that happened in like a non-regulatory way right i think you can't i think if you look at the um so there's one step that's taken i think the biden harris administration made an announcement today that they are having uh panels across research and ai sort of um what do you call it uh leaders if you will Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to find the articles. It'll give me 30 seconds. I'm trying to see if I can find the... There was a, a note about it today. Um, anyway, there's some announcement. Basically, they're gathering a panel of these people to figure out how to do legislation. So looking to experts, I think, to your point, absolutely right. I think mm-hmm. we've talked about this. Watching Congress and, and Zuck's testimony was was painful for those who work in tech. Some right. of the questions that were asked just don't make sense. Right. Right. So similarly here, the questions asked of AI, I think it's totally fair to ask about implication questions where Congress or legal knowledge may play a bigger role, mm-hmm. but bounded by research and technical understanding of what can and can't be possible. Right. So I think there's like maybe every congressperson needs a tech person on their staff to talk about how this works or what's realistic. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's like the right path. I don't know. It's it's a really challenging question. Yeah. Uh, so I got we got another LinkedIn question in here, oh, yeah. and this is this is perhaps like I think you're the best person to answer this because you, because of your time at Alio as well. Uh, oh, yeah. This is uh, someone that works in like the CSM space, so they're you know they've they've dealt with chatbots and and uh, you know you we use we use chatbots like people use intercom drift and they're you know they're talking about like chatbot. So with, with, with the advent of like AI and like, you know, leveraging AI, like uh, you can now have conversations without having to map out every possible conversational path. Usually building chatbot mm-hmm. workflows was very manual. Like it was a bot insofar as like it automatically served a message, but you went in and painstakingly defined like an RL Stein goosebumps, choose your own adventure book, right? Like you had to like, you know, <laughs> just yeah. write out all the messages yeah, yeah, and all the thoughts. How does it change now? Like, what what is it? How does it change to uh, serve the right info to to the people asking the right questions? And at what point, like, that is are you able to build an AI that's able to be like, you know what? Let me get someone for you, and without having to like yeah. manually code up that, but it just is able to do so. What does that look like? So, what you're talking about, and I'm going to get a little technical in this answer, but. So a, a natural language understanding and natural language system uh, mm-hmm. generally has a couple of parts. And this is historically. There's like uh, a piece of the system will turn whatever the incoming text is into some mathematical representation of a sentence. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to determine from that sentence the intent. What is the goal of the statement? And what is the relative, uh, sorry, relevant information surrounding it? So I want to get your phone number. The relevant components are going to be your phone number, your area code, your country code, all those pieces. Now, 
the interesting thing about large language models is you don't need to necessarily do that step anymore. It can determine the intent for you. So that's one part. Then you have historically dialogue management, which is this goosebumps sort of choose your own adventure thing that you referred to, where now you might just say, get these pieces of information. It's now prompt engineering. You might say to a large language model, get these pieces of information. Now it can go and manage that for you. But I think the key piece that you don't know about is the proprietary knowledge or data. So how do I serve proprietary knowledge? I want to get my pat leave policy for my company. Now, I can tell you that a company generally has a pat leave policy, but to find specifics, you need to go here, or I need to be able to search within your company's specific policy to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. I think that's an example of that. And today, you do have large language models like ChatGPT will tell you, I don't know this company's specific policy, but here's how you could do it. Uh, I think the idea of being able to kick it to a help desk or an agent to go to live chat or something like that mm -hmm. is, a, is a natural next step. And I think that's where enterprise can sort of fit all of those pieces together in a meaningful way that provides value. That's, I think that's, that's something interesting to think about. Uh, and, and, you know, in terms of, in terms of like the chatbot experience, right. Even, even the first part being like, hey, it's able to determine like what the important pieces of information are for you, right? To what degree of accuracy is it able to do that with, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, if I deployed at scale and, and it degrades, like what, what happens? Like, am I able to go and fix it retroactively? I think there's like, th this for me has been like a very enlightening conversation. I'm sure, I'm sure Tim would agree, right? Like, th like this, is, this is perhaps like the deepest dive I've done into AI. So. We're in the last five minutes of this, so I just want to switch gears and let let's let's talk about let's just talk about life a little bit. Like, what is it like working in a product environment? I know, like you know, you you recently became a dad. Like you know, you 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 have uh, you know your work life balance dynamic changes fundamentally. I think when that happens, yeah. I mean that's an understatement. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, so yeah. how, I was just how talking you, to a coworker how, about this the other day, right? Like let. Yeah. People say your priorities change, and that's true. And I don't think that's a justification. That like, it's it's a rationalization, but it's not an explanation. Interesting. I'll take an example, right? Like, Rit, I happen to know you love playing squash. Yeah. Like you play squash every day. Fine. Now, if you go to a world where I go, hey, do you want to go to the world championships of squash? All expenses paid but we have to leave tonight and go for the weekend and imagine that out of your mouth came no. And then on Saturday you think about it and you go, Oh no, no, I don't like that's the level to which your priorities change. Huh? And you're, Damn. it's like, it's totally uh, subconscious. Right. And so that's, I think it's changed my work-life balance a lot. I, I am definitely a workaholic. I think having lived with me, you know this, I was working 18 right. hour days pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, I don't anymore. I think like schedule becomes much more regimented. Mm -hmm. I'm not a morning person. I'm up at seven every day, at least if not earlier, because seven to eight is time with the baby. Mm -hmm. Eight to five is work. Five to eight is time with the baby. And then right. like eight to 10 is like, okay, dinner, maybe watch a TV show or something, finish up the one or two emails. 
And then somewhere between 10 and midnight, maybe I'll stay up a little bit later because I'm reading a book or doing something. Right. But usually that's, that's it. That's what I got in my tank before I have to go to bed again. Mm-hmm. And so I think that has shifted drastically because four hours a day is taken up by baby time. And I'm, we're super blessed that my parents live nearby. So we have like childcare that I can go drop in on if I have 30 minutes free. So that's been a blessing, but right. I truly don't know how people did it prior to work from home. It's just insane to me. Right. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, it's the way I feel like the way we work changed uh, and and like, you know, it changed honestly for the better. I think it lets, lets you reclaim time. Like even even now we have a physical office, but there's no mandate around being in here. Like you come like I'm here because I it, for me, it, like fosters focus, et cetera. And and like, you know, I, I I don't have to be if I don't want to be. And Tim's at in his house. And, uh, you know, that's 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 just the beauty of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Tim, do you want to do, do you have any questions yeah. do you want to wrap us up? Um, you know, there's many more questions that I would love to ask, but uh, we are at time here. So maybe we'll have you on half a year from now or something, Rahul. We, we would right. love to sure. uh, This has been honestly one of my favorite episodes. We've I, I've learned so much about you know AI and UX research, and, and it's been uh, ju- just a, a real pleasure having you on here. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, before we do wrap up, is there anything uh, that you want to take the opportunity and plug, tell people about what you're doing, what you got going on, something for them to check out, anything like that? I mean, hey, connect on LinkedIn. If you have questions around any of this stuff, I'm happy to go and answer them. And, and I think that question around how do we think about being safe about developing AI products is one that I'm sort of marinating on. So maybe I'll do some writing on that. So look for that. Would love to read awesome. that if you do. Well, thanks again, Rahul. It's uh, been a pleasure. Have a great uh, rest of your Friday and a great weekend. And all you listeners as well, have a great weekend. And uh, we'll be back here next Friday, same time, same place with another great guest. So see you then. Bye, everyone. Bye.